Welcome to Shortcut to Slim, a research-based podcast on dieting and nutrition, brought to you by GetMealPlans.com. I'm your host, Lindsay S. Nixon. Last week, my inbox was flooded with links to the New York Times article about Danny Cahill and the show The Biggest Loser. In case you missed the media hoopla, Danny and most of his fellow Biggest Loser contestants have been unable to maintain their weight loss. A group of researchers has been monitoring them and came to a conclusion, can you feel me doing air quotes, that the body fights back against weight loss, slow metabolism, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to get into the habit of podcasting about yesterday's news, but talking about this article does give me the chance to bring up a point I've been dying to make, and it allows me to circle back to a few topics from the previous episodes that I've wanted to elaborate more on, so here goes. Number one. The news is an entertainment business. It's not all that different from scripted television or movies. The need to sell headlines and airspace and earn high ratings all still applies, but we somehow forget that and treat the news like it's a non-profit public service. I assure you that's not the case. Advertisements and commercials are their lifeblood, so they will say and do whatever it takes to grab your attention. The news is in the business of feeding us exactly what we want to hear, so we love them, tune in, and click more. The sensationalizing I can get over. I'm not happy about it, but it doesn't boil my blood nearly as much as the blatant lack of transparency. Like most lawyers, I'm all about the freedom of the press. I buy into that whole, the media is the checks and balances on the government thing. But the press is not perfect. While they love whistleblowing on a politician's conflict of interest, they don't report on their own. Most news stories bolster the BS one of their sponsors is selling, or it's designed for a viral effect so they can make money on clicks, impressions, and advertisements. The other thing that bothers me is that news stories are always cherry-picked pseudoscience. They present reasonable-sounding arguments, I admit, but their evidence is a quote from a study often paid for or that benefits one of their sponsors, or their evidence is a quote from a professional so-and-so who is either on their payroll or on the payroll of one of their sponsors. Closing this thought out, please remember that everyone has an agenda, including me. I welcome your doubt. So here's my breakdown of the New York Times article. Before I dig in, I want to make one quick point. The fact that most of the contestants on The Biggest Loser gain their weight back isn't news, not new news anyway. The media cycle seems to circle back to this issue every 18 months. In January 2015, there was many articles titled, We Are All Fat Again, for example. Anyway, this new article says that Danny and the other contestants started the show with a normal metabolism, but that their metabolism slowed down and never went back up to normal. First, I take objection with the use of the word normal here, especially when they say normal for their size. What do they mean by size? Their weight? Three adult men can be the same height, the same age, and the same weight, but have completely different fat-to-muscle ratios. For example, one guy might be 20% body fat, another 12%, and then the other one 35%. And although they are the same size, meaning the same height and weight and even the same age, because their body composition of fat and muscle is so different, they would have different metabolisms. 
Point is, there can be no normal or average here. There are just too many competing variables. But fine, fine, I'm splitting hairs. Let's assume that Danny and the other contestants have a comparable metabolism to other people of the same height, the same weight, the same age, the same sex, and those people also had the exact same amount of muscle and body fat. The article then says that after the show is over, the contestants had slower metabolisms than when they started. I'm not sure why this is surprising. Of course it slowed. Several contestants lost 150 pounds or more, which is a whole other person. Being surprised their metabolism slowed is kind of like being surprised a Mini Cooper doesn't burn as much gas as a 16-wheeler Mack truck. Danny specifically lost 191 pounds. He was 430 pounds when he started, meaning he quite literally lost half himself. He was two Dannys before. Well, of course two Dannys is going to burn more calories than one Danny. Of course one Danny isn't going to need as many calories as two Dannys. Now, to be fair, the New York Times article agrees that the contestants' reduced metabolism post-weight loss isn't all that shocking. But what they say is shocking is that their metabolism is now, quote, slower than it should be for a person of their size, end quote. Again, I have to take objection with using words like size and normal, but for argument's sake, again, let's assume these contestants have slower metabolisms compared to the metabolisms of other people who are the same height and the same weight and the same age and the same sex and have the same amount of muscle and body fat. In episode five, I said, research shows that your metabolism won't slow down unless you've consumed less than 50% of your required calorie intake for several weeks. But even if one does get to that point, and I think it's safe to assume all of the contestants got there, your metabolism would only decrease by 10% at the most. So you would still lose weight if you maintained a deficit, just slightly slower. Because the New York Times article is being so loosey-goosey with words like normal and size, it's impossible for me to tell if the decreased rate they are sensationalizing is this 10% decrease. Whether it is or is not would be fascinating, but we can set it aside for now because the real heart of the article, the big volcanic explosion, isn't about a temporary metabolic decrease. In episode 5, I also said that numerous other studies confirm that once your weight has stabilized, your metabolism goes back up to expected levels. The key word here is stabilized, meaning the person has to maintain the same weight. Unfortunately, this is not true for most contestants. Most of them reported gaining 15 to 30 pounds immediately after the show ends, partially because they were forcibly dehydrated or they literally starved themselves before the final show. Ryan Benson, season one's winner, admitted to starving himself. He only drank water with maple syrup, lemon, and cayenne pepper for 10 days before the finale. He also jogged on the treadmill in a rubber suit, sat in a steam room, and did all kinds of other things the 24 hours leading to his final weigh-in. Benson admitted he was urinating blood at this point, but he was that desperate to win. He also lost 10 to 13 scale pounds in 10 days. I say scale pounds because Benson gained 32 pounds in five days after the finale. 
Similarly, Kay Hibbard, a season three finalist who has since become a spokesperson against the show, she's been quoted as saying things like, I participated in a myth that hurts people. She says that leading up to her finale, she was only eating sugar-free jello and asparagus. Hibbard has also stated that she was dehydrated when she was on the show to purposely manipulate the scales on the show and that her losses weren't true as advertised. We also can't sidestep the painful fact that most contestants left the Biggest Loser Ranch ill-equipped for life after the show. Some of the contestants admit this in the article. Danny specifically says he sometimes blacks out only to wake up and realize he ate an entire bag of potato chips. I guess my question is, did stabilization ever happen long enough for their bodies to correct their metabolism if it's possible? Which brings me to my next issue. The metabolic studies I referenced previously were done on people who lost weight primarily due to lack of food. Physical movements such as exercise might have contributed to the total calorie deficit. Many prisoners of war were first into labor camps and many anorexics still exercise. But overall, the bulk of the deficit was primarily from lack of calories consumed. This is quite a contrast to the Biggest Loser contestants who were starved while simultaneously being forced to endure extreme exercise for six to eight hours per day for several months. Danny specifically was tracked at burning 8,000 to 9,000 calories per day on the show. Unless we forget the Rachel Fredrickson controversy of 2014, Rachel was the season 15 winner, having lost 60% of her weight, which amounted to losing one pound per day, every day. Her rail-thin appearance put the show under scrutiny, especially when Jillian Michaels quit a few weeks after. And even more disturbing are the recent reports of contestants going to the hospital for dehydration and heat stroke. And before I forget to mention her, Suzanne Mendonca, a 2005 contestant, she's now pre-diabetic, which is important to keep in mind when I talk about insulin later. Point is, I think we can all agree while the show is supposed to be inspirational, in reality, it's misleading and very dangerous to those who participate. But what about their metabolism? The New York Times article says Danny's metabolism has slowed so much that just to maintain his current weight of 295 pounds, he has to eat 800 calories a day less than a typical man his size. Anything more turns to fat. Again, I have to take objection with words like typical and size, but I'll assume that they mean Danny has a slower metabolism compared to other men of the same height, the same weight, the same age, and that have the exact same amount of muscle and body fat as Danny. But wait. Did these other men that he's being compared to, did they lose and regain too? And if they did lose weight, was it Biggest Loser style? Probably not. So we really shouldn't compare Danny to them because the side effects from losing and gaining, as well as the manner in which the losses occurred and the gains incurred, create dozens of other variables. But let's hold off on that for a hot second while I get fussy over the fact that we aren't getting the breakdown of Danny's diet. Where is Danny's food log? Where are the food logs of all the people he's being compared to? If episodes one through three of this podcast have taught us anything, it's that a calorie is not always a calorie and that weight loss isn't a straight math formula. And since when does science ever have such perfectly round numbers like 800? Bioavailability, anyone? This stuff isn't quantifiable down to such exactness. And since I'm already riled up, how could the research possibly, possibly know that anything more turns to fat? While yes, 
It is true that consuming in excess of what one needs can lead to stored body fat. Not every excess calorie consumed will make that journey. And I'm not just talking about bioavailability, but the scientific fact that sometimes the metabolic cost is too high to store the excess. For example, dietary fat is very easily stored as body fat, but the calories from carbohydrates are not. They tend to be burned off as heat. Humans are very inefficient at de novo lipogenesis, which is the process of turning sugars into fats. It takes extreme conditions for this to happen in the first place, and when it does, the metabolic cost is around 30%, meaning even if someone's body was converting 100 extra calories of sugars to body fat, it would take at least 30 of those calories just to make the process happen. I'll stop here. See episodes two, three, and four of this podcast for more info. For argument's sake, let's accept that the contestants have slower metabolisms than other people now. Why are the researchers only blaming their weight loss? Why are they ignoring the possibility that the extreme conditions on the show had extreme physiological consequences? One point I make on every one of these podcast episodes is that we can't cheat or outmath nature, and anytime we try to, we pay a consequence. As your body loses fat, your hormones change, and hormonal changes cause all kinds of variables and problems, especially when it comes to your body weight. This I don't contest. This is also a medical and scientific fact. Rapid weight loss can cause a weakening of the heart muscle, which could set a person up for cardiovascular problems. But this also means weight loss could affect how the heart pumps, and that alone would change someone's metabolism. Rapid weight loss can also cause dangerous reductions in potassium and electrolytes, as well as causing key nutrient deficiencies if the person's losing weight from starving themselves. And all of these things create a million other variables that create a million other variables that could all have long-term metabolic consequences as well as long-term health consequences in general. And then anorexia in males also decreases testosterone. And while I'm not calling the contestants anorexics, their prolonged starvation at the hands of their coaches puts them practically in the same boat. And then there is a scientific fact that decreased testosterone causes all kinds of other problems, especially in men, although this mysteriously was not in the New York Times article either. The New York Times does make a big fuss about leptin, however, which makes me wonder who is paying these researchers. Let me explain. Leptin came to fame 20 years ago, literally in 1996. For a hot minute, leptin was going to be the cure for obesity and highly profitable for whichever company produced a pill form. Because at the time, administered synthesized leptin caused weight loss. But then something unexpected happened. More research revealed that obese people had an excess of leptin rather than a deficiency. The more body fat someone had, the more leptin was present, leading researchers to conclude that obese people are insensitive to leptin production. That then became the million-dollar question in obesity research. Why are obese people insensitive? Researchers at UCSF Medical Center cracked the code, sort of. They figured out that insulin was causing widespread leptin resistance. It would take dozens more podcasts to talk about insulin and how diet, particularly fats and animal foods, affects insulin. But for now, let me leave it at changes in insulin create a million more variables. There are just too many variables at play here to blame or pinpoint one thing or five things. And the researchers fail to acknowledge this basic fact. 
The reality to this reality TV show is that the producers and coaches are doing something to people nature had never conceived of. And we aren't even close to beginning to understand the causes and effects of that short-term or long-term. What we do know is that there is a medically healthy rate you can lose weight, which is 20 to 25 pounds a year, about half a pound per week. I know that most medical professionals will say one to two pounds per week, but studies of people who actually keep it off, they tend to only lose 20 to 25 pounds a year. And looking back at Meal Mentors data for our members who have lost 75 pounds or more and then kept it off, almost all of them lost about 25 to 30 pounds per year. It really is a marathon. One last quick note about leptin. With healthy, slow weight loss, sensitivity to leptin returns to normal if it drops. But with the contestants, their loss was radical, and then they regained all the weight, which is a double whammy. Some obesity researchers believe the Biggest Loser contestants end up with pseudo-Cushing's. Cushing's is caused by either excessive cortisol from a medication or from a tumor that produces or promotes the production of excessive cortisol. Cortisol is a stress hormone. Anyway, the researchers believe that losing so much weight so fast on the show is creating a pseudo-Cushing's in these contestants and is unfortunately mostly irreversible. I happen to know a little bit about Cushing's because one of my good friends has it, and what I know from her and what I read from some of these researchers, I do think this might be the explanation. But there's still another explanation no one's talking about, which is there are psychological consequences. I haven't had a chance to cover this on the podcast yet, but there are mountains of evidence that when we feel we have suffered, we reward ourselves, consciously and unconsciously. I can't imagine how the mind would react to the suffering on The Biggest Loser or what kind of PTSD contestants might have from all of the screaming or even the media attention afterwards. I keep thinking about Allie Vincent's heartbreaking post last month. Allie, the first woman to win The Biggest Loser, said in April 2016 she had joined Weight Watchers and is now almost back to her starting weight on the show. She went on to say, quote, I feel ashamed. I feel embarrassed. I feel overwhelmed. I feel like a failure, end quote. And that breaks my heart. Then, too, as I mentioned a million years ago, there seems to be no effort of teaching behavior modification on the show. In working with hundreds of people through Meal Mentor, I can attest real, lasting weight loss comes from behavioral changes. With having support at home or having support of an online community being a very close, critical second. Do the contestants have that? It's hard to say. I think it's also safe to assume that the contestants are losing muscle in addition to fat on the show. Considering their grueling workouts and the lack of calories they're eating, they would have to lose their muscle. Their bodies would literally have to eat itself to stay alive in those conditions. And that in and of itself would change their metabolism, and quite dramatically, especially if they regained their fat but not the muscle loss. I have to say, I do find it curious that the show measures based on a scale and isn't measuring actual fat loss. They have to know their contestants are dehydrated and losing muscle. There really is no other explanation. Finally, from my own personal journey, I have to say that maintaining has been a thousand times harder than losing weight. 
And this is something I said last week to the Meal Mentor Slim team. Weight loss is not a finish line. Whatever it takes to get you over the finish line is what you have to keep doing to maintain it. Nothing you do is temporary unless you only want your results to be temporary. Losing weight has to be a marathon. It's not a sprint. Other beefs I have with the article and or study. Number one, there is no control group. This alone will set any researcher's hair on fire. Number two, the article says, there is always a weight a person's body maintains without any effort. And while it is not known why that weight can change over the years, dot, 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 so much, nope. We already know why weight changes over the years. It's a change in body composition. See the last two episodes, New York Times. And as for set weights, there is some research that they exist. But the same research says that if you maintain your new weight consistently for a little while, then that weight becomes the new set weight. And this applies with with gains and losses. Beef number three, the New York Post added this little lie to their version of the article. Quote, this finding wasn't surprising. When people skip breakfast, your body automatically conserves energy, which is blatantly not true. Please see episodes five and six, New York Post. And lastly, beef number four, the New York Times article also talked about these people on a diabetes drug who were starving if they tried to cut back by even as much as 200 calories to lose weight. I don't deny that they feel hunger, but one look at the satiety index can explain all of this. Let's be real, 200 calories of donuts isn't going to fill you up like 200 calories of potatoes. I really don't understand why we're still talking about calories as it's a calorie, a calorie, a calorie. It's not straight math. Finally, there were a lot of great comments to this article in our private member forums, and I want to read a few of them here. The first is from Natasha, who herself has lost over 115 pounds and kept it off. She wrote, As I was reading this, I was thinking, because a plant-based diet is high in fiber and allows people to eat a relatively greater volume of food, it would help with feeling satiated. Weight loss and maintenance seem like very complex subjects. I wonder if similar metabolic studies have been done on people who have lost weight on high-carb diets. I couldn't find any studies, but Natasha makes a great point. Karen wrote, The scientists who came up with this ask a lot of questions throughout the article that other scientists have already answered. I think this study is not complete. And they don't say what any of these people's metabolisms are, just that they are lower than expected. Expected by whom? Someone who is an expert in metabolism? My metabolism is way lower than I expected it to be, but it's exactly what Shortcut to Slim's research said it would be. The contestants on the show go on extreme diets and do extreme amounts of exercise to lose extreme amounts of weight very quickly. Maybe now they have adrenal issues. Unsure emoticon. I don't think the stats are scary for normal, slow, and steady weight loss on eating whole foods. I couldn't agree more. Lastly, Skylar wrote, The Biggest Loser is well known for its abusive and dangerous weight loss techniques. They induce a severe starvation state for seven months or more. No wonder that might screw up your body permanently. Some people have heart conditions now from it. Saying this applies to anyone who loses weight is stupid and not supported by science, and they are irresponsible for portraying their study this way. Because now, what point is there for the person who reads this to clean up their diet and exercise regularly? Until there are a lot more studies on normal, non-starvation weight loss, don't take this to heart. My sentiments exactly. 
This article is full of BS. The Biggest Loser contestants are made a spectacle on a show that is all-out deplorable and breeds unrealistic expectations. And while this article exposes that truth, it turns around and does a huge disservice of spreading more myths despite volumes of compelling evidence to the contrary all to feed lots of desperate people exactly what they want to hear. It's not your fault. There is absolutely no personal responsibility. But one day, we'll sell you a new leptin diet pill, so hang tight. And if by any slim chance one of the contestants ends up hearing this podcast, please email me. If for no other reason, so I can apologize. Because someone should apologize to you. As a finale sort of conclusion... Let me say this. What we all know but sometimes don't want to believe is still true. Losing weight gradually is the best way. Don't rock the boat. Lifestyle change still matters more than anything else, so take it a maintainable step at a time. Losing weight is hard work, but keeping it off is harder. Thanks for listening to Shortcut to Slim, brought to you by GetMealPlans.com. I'm your host, Lindsay S. Nixon, and if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes and share the episode with a friend.